0: So hi, and welcome back to Green Planet, Blue Planet podcast. My name is Julian Guderlai, and I'm here with Karin Winter, the CEO and founder of Mission B. Welcome to the show, Karin.
1: Hi, Julian. Thank you so much for having me.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And from Palo Alto today. Thanks for making the time. I would love to hear just like a start an intro about Mission B, because I'm so fascinated about what you're doing since I first met you, and just... Give us a little intro, like what is Mission B and how do you, how do you really bring mindfulness to schools, communities, and children?
1: So Mission B is a nonprofit that I founded in February of 2013 when I was living in New York where I grew up. We bring mind, passion, and altruism and social and emotional learning to schools. So I founded Mission B after being a decade in a high school on Long Island. And prior to that, spending four years as a social worker and doing clinical work in the New York foster care system. And seeing that a lot of children were oftentimes diagnosed with anxiety, depression, and a host of other issues, such as uh, addictions. A lot of them had trauma, intergenerational trauma, and, and personal trauma. And I felt like we needed a scalable solution for mental health. In my high school, there was 1,200 students. I saw about 200 a year. Mm. And another social worker saw 200. And then there was 800 students that weren't being seen. Mm. So as much as I respect and appreciate psychotherapy, I thought that we need to equip the children with the school skills to help manage their own behavior and self-regulate. So that's what inspired me to start the foundation, the organization. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Wow. So how to really scale this topic, right? Like how to scale emotional kind of intelligence almost and give us a little bit more insight because I think most listeners have such uh, little ideas of how the realities really look out there.
1: Yeah, I think that many people do benefit, like I said, from counseling and psychotherapy and things of that nature. But 40 minutes once a week is not necessarily mental health. I believe that within us, we need to cultivate our own solutions, uh, make wise choices, and regulate our decisions and our choices. So mindfulness is scalable in that it's a daily practice. It's just like exercise. You know, you do it once a day for, you know, five minutes, 40 minutes, or two hours. And it's based in neuroscience. So, a lot of the times we are in a sympathetic nervous state, so rather than parasympathetic. So, our brain is hijacked from stress or anxiety, and that wears and tears on our HPA axis, which is our hypothalamic, pituitary, adrenal axis. And that kind of wear and tear on our system, on our nervous system, on our endocrine system can create a lot of really uh, not just physical issues but it can affect our ability to to make good choices to feel relaxed to focus and to concentrate in our academics and to have healthy um, balanced relationships so i feel like mindfulness is the missing link um, and it's a scientific evidence-based practice that's rooted in neuroscience right our brain is like a machine and it needs a break from all the things that it's doing So throughout the day, if we learn to regulate our neurology, regulate our endocrine system, to pause, to create spaces in our day to relax and to rejuvenate our mind, our our mind is more resilient. And I think that we've been amiss in our world in, in recognizing the importance of mental techniques, like exercise has You know, what Dan Harris says in one of his videos if you told someone in the 1940s you were going for a jog, they would say, Well, who's chasing you? And I love that quote because back then, exercise wasn't as popular as it is today. There wasn't gym memberships. You know, people would go for a walk to get exercise, but people weren't running as often. And then once the scientists came in and said, Oh, exercise is really good for your heart and it's a form of preventive medicine and it helps with weight loss and all these other benefits, it became it became common for people to exercise. And if we don't exercise, we feel like we feel guilty or like that we're not healthy. And what Dan Harris is saying in that video is that he hopes that that mindfulness is the next public health revolution and that we really begin to see mindfulness as an exercise for our brain that's necessary, that's necessary to function in the way of mental health, uh, physical health, etc. So I think that... Is the next public health revolution. I don't think we're going to see a slope of disenchantment with mindfulness where it's just a trend and the trend's going to stop and people are going to not be into it anymore, like some sort of trendy diet or think something of that nature. I really feel like it's a sustainable practice and it is the next public health revolution. I believe that for all of us, if we teach the brain and we condition the brain to do these practices, that will have a healthier... We'll have a healthier generation of human beings <laughs> that are self-regulated a- and relaxed. And I look forward to that time when, you know, it's been 20 years since the kids have been doing it all throughout school and we can just really see a new generation of people that are that are more empathetic, more compassionate, more focused, etc.
0: So. And possibly less less reactionary, right? Because Yeah. I, I love what you're less- saying. I mean, public health revolution is well, I think it's the first time I've heard that. and I, I'm, I'm in love with that term because that's really what we're looking at. And I think it's such an interesting comparison to exercise. And it's not just a fad, like with all respect, maybe aerobics was in the 80s and 90s. It, aerobics came and went, but we, we're still working out. We're still exercising. We're still increasingly running or staying in shape or doing all the things that have us in our bodies and present. So I think I very much follow your argument that mindfulness will, will take a similar kind of next stage or place in that chain. Karen, let me ask you like a, a personal question then on, on that note. Like, so how does it look for yourself? Because I can only imagine running a non-for-profit. Your days must be from exhilaratingly amazing to crazy busy. And how do you kind of bring in that equilibrium with mindfulness? Is it just routine or, or, or is it just coming alive in every moment? Or, or tell us, like, how does that work for you?
1: Yeah, So part of the culture that I've built into the organization, which is small, I'm the only full-time person, but I have a full-time intern, I have um, a part-time marketing person, a part-time outreach person, and then we have our mindful educators that are contractors that go into the schools. So we start most of our meetings and conference calls with a mindful practice. In the morning, when we get to the office, we either go for a 20-minute walk, and we talk, we have our, our first meeting of the day for 20 minutes, and we all discuss how we're feeling, one thing that we're we feel we're excelling in, one thing we need support in, and one thing that we're grateful for. And we usually throw in another question. Then we come back to the office and we do a 10-minute practice. Sometimes the 10-minute practice ends up being a 20-minute practice, but we've infused it into the culture. As far as my personal practice goes, I started studying when I was 16, I'm 43, so a really long time ago. And I rigorously studied his work from 16 till about 21. For like five years, and then I started studying the Yoga Sutras and became a yoga teacher, and and took less of a Buddhist, more of a Hindu path um, path of study. But it's not my religion. I'm not a Buddhist or a Hindu. I'm just a mindfulness practitioner, and our program's completely secular. Um, right now, I currently live at a mindful community in Silicon Valley, so they have meditation every morning at the temple at 6:30. Um, I tend to go by myself later in the evening, around 10 to 10:20, 10:40. It depends on how long I want to sit. Um, I also do a practice typically at lunch, either a movement practice, which might include include dance or Tai Chi or a seated mindfulness practice as well. So yeah, so it's built in my life in that area. But I think most importantly, like I try to be mindful throughout the day. I had a therapist like over a decade ago who said mindfulness is 24 seven. So it doesn't take the place of the seated practice, of course, but it's, what are you doing? Are you embodying and compassion and thoughtfulness are you are, are you pausing when agitated <laughs> you know are you practicing equanimity in your relationships with people people that have power and people that don't you know it's like how are we what, what's our interface with the world I think that that's a really important piece is mindfulness is our interface with the world it's how are we treating ourselves and how are we treating other people so that's something that I also really value and, and then also I use it. I use consciousness um, and, and my mindfulness practice to do things that would probably surprise some people, like fundraise geez, and corporate sponsorship. $175,000 I made. It happened from one act of kindness <laughs> that I performed for a friend. And out of that, I raised $10,000. And that person introduced me to someone else, and I raised five, and another five, and another 10, and another 10, and another 25, into another 70. And, and it just went on, and she had wow. her calculator out, and I told the story. And undoubtedly, the idea to help this person came to me in a meditation. It felt like like a divine intervention, and I clearly tracked the dots, and I literally raised $175,000 from that one mindfulness set. So wow. I think that it is... Yeah. It can help. It can definitely help cultivate abundance. Some of the meditation practice that I started with when I was younger and needed more support was I would light a candle and I would focus on the candle and I would play background music and I would focus on my breath. So in yoga, they call it a drishti. So I'd have three drishtis. I'd have the candlelight, the music, and my breath. And I would just notice the breath um, breathing in. I know I'm breathing in. Breathing out, I know I'm breathing out. That's a really, that's a Thich Nhat Hanh meditation. He typically doesn't use music or candles necessarily, but he does that type of really simple mantra. From there, um, I also integrated some mantra repetitions. So I use the mantra, Soham, 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 Shivaham," for probably eight years. This is not like, by the way, I'm speaking out of my own personal experience, not mission B because we don't use any, um, all our language is secular. Um, so I did that for a long time. I also do uh, mindfulness, like with movement, like I was saying, which is uh, qigong and tai Chi based. So I sit under a Navy SEAL for a couple years. So in the morning, I don't do this as often as I used to, but I occasionally do a qigong practice. And so my friends, Jeff and Nicole, have something called the finders course, and one of the Different practices work for different people. So, some people might like breath counting, other people might like a guided practice, some people might like to do a sitting Zen practice, whereas others might want to do like expressive movement therapy or dance. This is super
0: interesting how, how you're it. explaining that so, different pieces work for different people because I, I really feel that when I think of teaching children how to be mindful or how, um, how to have access to mindfulness techniques. I have to think about all the different variations of mindfulness practices I've gone through in the last 10, 12 years. And as you just described for me too, Qigong plays a role, but it's not an everyday thing. A seated meditation with a, a mantra is part of an everyday. But I do know that for other people, a seated meditation is, is the, hardest, the hardest piece of the practice. So maybe from these different elements, like kind of find your own uh, like building block. Um, how, does that, how does that translate to mission B? Because children are so, I guess, so easily to be, to be excited if something is really curious for their mind. But also like how, how how does that really look in reality if you have a room full of 10, 20, 30, 100 children in front of you that, that might be new to the topic?
1: Yeah, I want to answer that. Before I do, I want to just clarify that the majority of my most consistent practice is like an insight practice where I'm sitting in silence. That's like my most, it's kind of like, I brush my teeth every day and I do that almost every day as well. Brilliant. But I do integrate a lot of other interesting things. For the children, I the structure of how we teach a class. So what we do is we go in, we do a seated guided meditation into a silent breathing practice. And then we do either, we do yoga and Tai Chi based movements. So we don't call it yoga and Tai Chi, we call it mindful movement because it's a lot of um, techniques that were, that I, um, I owned a yoga studio in New York for like uh, close to a decade. So, so we created yoga Tai Chi based movement that can be done without a mat and without a lot of space. So they can be done in the classroom while the students are standing, either standing next to their chair or desk or sitting in their actual desk. Um, So after we've done the movements, we do a sharing circle, similar to what they might do in restorative justice or like a 12 step meeting where they're like, "Uh, uh, hi, my name's Joe, and everyone says, hi, Joe. And one thing I'm feeling today is sadness or gratitude or whatever it may be, and everyone says, thank you, Joe. And those, the sharing circles change based on the lesson and the theme of the day. Um, Then we go into a 20-minute lesson. So an example of that might be neuroscience or digital detox or empathy or compassion. And this is more academic focused. We might share, depending on the, the age level, we might share research. We might share interesting facts. But there's also an interactive component that goes into the next 10 or 15 minutes of the class where the students are getting in small groups. And they're either doing group sharing or role playing or create us with one another so it's a group effort and I wouldn't say it's design thinking like in the traditional sense but they're there and then we close it out with a guided seated practice affirmations and stillness and at times we do a closing circle it depends on the lesson so that's kind of like the structure of what we're teaching as far as the mindfulness practice peak components concerned It's more guided meditations, like something you might hear on calm.com, like the calm app or all of our guided meditations are rooted in nature. So for example, lesson one is the ocean breath, which is a a three-part breath and all the breaths are evidence-based. So we'll have like a three-part guided breath, which we call the ocean breath. And then we have an ocean visualization where the students envision themselves at the ocean. I can like walk you through one of those if you wanna try it out. The next I don't know if you want
0: to or not. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I'm always open I for that. I'm, I'm just fascinated listening. Let's, let's do that a little later in, in this interview for sure. I'd I love to kind of yeah. guide us through a meditation because that's, as you said, it's a daily occurrence, right? And there is no, for me in my meditation practice, there is not really a, a right or wrong or this is the one way I have to do it. So I'm, I'm, I'm personally more than happy to always expand my horizon.
1: Yeah, so each lesson, all of the breaths. So we have lesson one, ocean breath, ocean visualization. Lesson two is the rain breath with the rainforest visualization. Another lesson is the river breath, a river visualization. So we integrate nature. And one of the reasons that we integrate nature, um, like when we do mindful walking, we take the students outside, is because a lot of children are nature deprived. They're too trapped in their technology. Even when they're outside, they're on their phones. They're not connecting with the earth. And- if we want the children to become, my friend Mark Mark Coleman says, stewards of the earth, we need them to have empathy and a connection to nature. Um, a lot of kids, like in, for example, that we work with, we have a lot of schools in New York. I feel like a lot of many of the kids there are nature deprived. So we want them to use their imagination. And I remember there was a teacher like 25 years ago, I was at a workshop in Manhattan, and this guy was asking his teacher from India, who was staying in his apartment on the Upper West Side, like, don't you want to go see a museum in a park? And he said, well, there's a million museums and parks within me. I'd rather just meditate. <laughs> so it's like, based on that premise, I can't afford to take the kids to the rainforest or to the ocean on a field trip. At least they can use their imaginations to get there. Um, so that's an important piece of what we do. So the way the curriculum is designed is the first four weeks are personal development. So it's like mindfulness in the brain, being present, digital detox, positive affirmation, so positive psychology is a component of that. And then the next four weeks are interpersonal relationships. So our relationships with our friends are, what is empathy? How do we practice empathy? How do we experience it? What is compassion? And then the last part, um, the, the final four weeks are focused on building a mindful community. So altruism and values, having the students collectively, collectively identify what are their values as a class and then what are their individual values and how do they want to practice their values in an altruistic way? So the kids might break up into four groups, like the earth, water, an animal, or like our four, we might add, <laughs> those are our five types and the subgroups and we provide resources for them to become altruistic citizens. So it might be having a bake sale for a local shelter for animals or engaging in a project that has to do with the ocean. So putting posters around the school about water conservation or plastics in the ocean. So we're trying, that's the part of curriculum we're developing right now is exploring the UN's uh, 17 goals for sustainability and um, humanity and all that. And then also like the goal of mindfulness, right? Is not just to help ourselves or even our personal interpersonal relationships. It's to become better, citizens right to make the world a better place to be more altruistic in the world at least that's my opinion so we want the kids to have inner peace and then we want them to bring peace into their relationships and then we want them to bring peace into the world so the curriculum is kind of designed in that way yeah
0: inner peace peace in their relationships and then peace into the world I like that that's that's a a good triad in that sense I find it very interesting talking about mindfulness and kind of looking at it from, from this angle of our conversation here, because remember you and I met a couple months ago at like a mindfulness experiment in that sense. It was a, a flow uh, project where um, we were hooked up diodes that would basically reflect our breath into a, a light that would go on and off. And then we heard our own heartbeats through headphones, which in a group circle experiment, wow, it blew my mind I have to say, because it was such a new feedback loop at the time to uh, experience. And I feel that that's really what's what's happening with mindfulness in my own life it It helps me create well inner peace peace in my relationships, possibly, but I feel like it helps me look at relationships in a different regard, so or in a different from a different angle, and even my relationships to larger topics, like let's say global warming or climate change or altruism or capitalism, the moment you come from a mindful perspective or you're You're able to breathe with something that's being said for 10 seconds, 20 seconds before you have to form your next answer. Actually, a lot of the times my opinions are either a lot stronger or a lot more flexible depending on, on, um, on the topic.
1: Yeah. I think that when we're self regulated, also what happens is that everything in the world becomes less threatening, which is really important. Mm -hmm. So For children, they have social threats. They have academic threats. You know, it's ingrained into our systems to be accepted by groups, right? So if we've, a lot of times, especially like in middle school, our biggest fear is be fear of being humiliated or um, isolated from our group. It's built into our survival mechanism, and that's part of the old brain. So when we regulate that part of the brain, the old brain, the reptilian brain, and we engage more of the prefrontal cortex and um, sort of like higher order cognitive functioning, We have, we're more resilient to disharmony in our lives. We're more able to be courageous, to stand up for ourselves, to stand up for other people. I was actually out with my friend who's a Swami last night. And this drunk guy was like really rude to us. (laughs) It's really funny. But because the Swami and I were such mindfulness practitioners, we handled ourselves so gracefully, you know, whereas like, I don't know that to other people, interfacing with the world in that way would have been as graceful or as forgiving or as, or, and we were also able to set a boundary right with this person. We were able to set like a compassionate boundary and be kind in an unusual circumstance. Whereas an average person might, you want the details? No, of course.
0: I mean, I'm I'm in the situation with you right now. I'm, I'm I'm picturing somebody being drunk and rude, but how, because that's really where real life happens, right? Like how do you, well, for one, maybe the world or the universe, offers you a situation that you're able to handle with. depends on your philosophy if you agree with that. But then how do you handle those moments? Do you, Somebody uh, attacked you verbally or like what happened?
1: Okay, so we were at a venue and this guy who was really drunk pretended to be the owner of the venue and asked us <laughs> if we were members and said that we didn't look like members. So we were at this club in, in SF, which is like a private club. And he's a member and he questioned our membership, I guess, cause we didn't look chic enough. We looked like hippies or something. And the Swami actually is on the founding board of this, which the, the guy wouldn't have suspected. He's a founding board member of this organization. So, so he said, I'm straight. And I was able to say, I'm finding your, that I thought he was actually the owner of this place, but I said, I'm finding what you're saying offensive. And
2: I think we're really-
1: running you know so it was like we're able to set a compassionate boundary one of the things that we teach the kids is how to set a boundary with someone who's bullying Thing. And that guy was bullying us. It was like, who would bully me in a swami, you know? But like it happens in the world. And we were able to set a compassionate boundary. And on the way out, I said to the man, that guy over there is saying he's the owner of, I don't want to say this club because everyone in San Francisco knows it, it's the one that you guys are thinking of. And they said, Oh no, that guy doesn't own this place. And I said, Okay, well, maybe you should talk to him. So I was able to be an upstander, stand up for me in the swami, report him to someone of a higher authority. And if I had not been so self-regulated and had a had a resilient underlying state, I might not have handled it as appropriately. Like I might've used a profanity or something like, who the hell do you think you are bullying me? And it, was like, you know, it was like, we handled it with a state of grace and resilience. And I think that when we're standing up to political injustice, when we're standing up to socioeconomic injustice, when we're standing up to a lot of the things that are happening in our country, we are able to be fierce warriors, right? Like mindful warriors without holding hatred in our heart without holding anger in our heart and with being able to set that compassionate boundary. I think that's really, really important. You know, one of the things I would say 95% of what we do is engaging students, but 5% of the time we dedicate that to honoring mindful heroes of the world. So in 2016, I went to the White House and I presented a National Day of Forgiveness to President Obama. And I did that in partnership with the Choose Love Foundation and the Worldwide Forgiveness Alliance. Yeah, but it was like kind of an idea that I had, like we should have the president support a National Day of Forgiveness. And what he ended up doing was he endorsed Worldwide Forgiveness Day, um, which was great. And we ended up honoring Nelson Mandela with the Worldwide Forgiveness Award in Battery Park. And uh, we worked with the Worldwide Forgiveness Alliance to arrange for Tutu to get the forgiveness award at his birthday party in, in Cape Town, South Africa. Anyway, it's a long story. It's not necessary to tell the whole thing. But the importance of that is these are people that have been upstanders. And I feel like the reason that leaders like Martin Luther King and and gandhi and tutu and rosa parks you know like heroes like that have had the wherewithal and the strength and the courage to stand up to leaders is because they're spiritually fit they're self-regulated and they're aligned and if you're going to be an advocate for world peace and stand up to some of the bullies in the world you have to have that sense of resilience and courage that's that's embedded into your neurology otherwise your nervous system we'll have a hard time navigating that challenge because it's, it's innate. It's our old brain. It's going to react to the bully. Right. And whether that bully is the president of the United States without naming names <laughs> or someone else, like we need to be self-regulated in order to heed that calling and do it with an authentic sense of courage. So um, it takes practice and it's just like building a muscle at the gym. It takes weeks and then years and decades of practice. And the more that we do it, the stronger the muscle becomes. So when we face adversity and discrimination and judgment, we have a power within us that's greater than that person. And we have an ability to set up for ourselves. And I think that if we teach the children to do that, they will be better advocates than we've been, you know, our generation. Absolutely.
0: I'm I'm in in total alignment with you on that. And uh, that's certainly a journey that's kind of just starting to really, really step into what it means to raise different children than we've been raised uh, to be right because there is a form of purity and and clarity in children that in in my own words i would say that comes from a place of soul that that exists and that it it classically was was kind of being educated out of children right there's this bucky fuller quote i think every child is born a genius until the world the them." so when we actively engage with children kind of on that level and say, but the opposite, let's cultivate that, let's cultivate your inner genius, let's let's cultivate this ability to, you use the word self-regulate a lot, which I really like, um, may, maybe give us a little bit more of um, a context or, or a definition, so people can really take this away as a, a piece of learning out of this conversation. Self-regulation, like what does it entail?
1: I definitely abuse that word. It means to manage our emotions, and to manage our decisions, and to navigate our interpersonal relationships. If we're faced with a challenge, like uh, an exam, we're able to say, okay, I'm noticing that I'm feeling stressed about this exam. Breathing in, I'm feeling anxious. Breathing out, I'm feeling anxious. And letting us feel anxious. Because when we first feel an emotion, oftentimes we try to like push it away. Like, oh no, I feel anxious. I need to stop feeling anxious. It's like pushing away a crying baby. So if we can just hold space for that, for that emotion for a moment and breathe in and breathe out, it, it loses its power, right? Um, another um, circumstance we have to self-regulate is in times of stress and trauma. So given the, like a lot of students, um, we have these, they now have these uh, drills in the school, they're lockdown drills, where they don't tell the students, this is just a drill. This kid's just, all they know is like code 1000, lockdown. They don't know if a school shooter's in the building or if it's a drill, right? So oh,
2: wow.
1: right then and there, they're experiencing acute trauma, which is devastating, right? And I mean, I had I experienced this as a child in the in the 80s, and I can't believe this is still happening. We would have um, bomb drills, but we knew they were drills at the time. So it seems we've, we have gone backwards. So we've creative breaths, like the quiet air breath that the students can do during the lockdown drill. So we've, we're then transforming the lockdown drill into a mindfulness practice, right? So they're self-regulating during that practice rather than becoming dysregulated, which is what's happening. Kids are having panic attacks. They're like one parent emailed me saying my child threw up, you know, it's like, can, how can you help? We're providing our children with a lot of opportunities for anxiety, so I think we have an obligation to provide them with opportunities to cultivate peace. And that's kind of some examples, anecdotes around self-regulation.
0: Got but it. I want to go back to the
1: Bucky quote for a minute, if you don't mind. Please, yeah. <laughs> May I? Okay. So Buckminster Fuller, and I just because re- the thing that's fascinating to me is I realized this about a month ago Um I used to tell a story when people would say, how did you get into mindfulness and altruism? And I said, well, when I was 16, my parents sent me to live in Ann Arbor, Michigan with my uncle Chuck that was in te- he was teaching environmental science there. And they said, if you want to be a hippie, go live with your uncle Chuck. He's a real hippie and see how you like it. And their hope was that I'd have this huge aversion to becoming a hippie. And he picked me up and he took me to the woods and there was, um, it was mostly men. They were they had built this geodesic dome and they were playing something called the world game. This was in 1991 and they were distributing all the world's resources over like a five day period or something like that. And I was playing the game with them and they all had like 20 years on me. You know, they were like these old guys. And I thought, Oh my God, we just, at the end of the game, we had just distributed all the world's resources evenly to all people. There was equanimity, you know, it was, there was harmony. And Somebody put a Bucky quote in one of their emails the other day, and I said, "I, I think that was Bucky's thing that I was at." I didn't make the connection, so I-, I looked it up, and sure enough, they were outside University of Michigan in the woods in 1991 playing the World Game, and I was there. So it's like really cool. That was one of the things that inspired me in my life to get involved in this type of work because we live in a world where there's a lot of suffering, and I I believe it's rooted in lack of consciousness and greed and fear. So I th- I think that consciousness is the answer to a more equal world I think it starts in our brains and in our hearts and if we can get kids to become more conscious citizens we'll live in a world where there's more equanimity
0: that's very that's very beautiful and profound and I am in absolute agreement I would love to right now circle back to what you offered a little earlier a, a short moment of a guided breath meditation you still up for that?
1: Absolutely. Yeah. So I'm a fast talker, by the way. I'm from Long Island, but when I, when I leave my practice, I'm going to go nice and slow. So don't worry. <laughs> All right, cool. So wherever you are, just find your seat. So get nice and comfortable. Sit up nice and straight. Shoulders back and down, heart lifted. And just begin to connect with your breath.
2: And begin to notice where you feel the breath in your body. You might feel it in your belly or your lungs and chest. And inviting your breath to deepen. Notice if you feel your breath in the space behind your heart as you breathe in. And as you exhale, invite the spine to relax. And breathing in through the nose, notice that when you inhale, the breath is cool. And when you exhale, the breath is warm. So inhaling cool air. and exhaling warm air. And invite the muscles in your face to relax, feeling the jaw soften, the muscles around the ears and throat. And take a deep breath in and feel the breath rise from the belly up into the heart Filling the shoulders and on the exhale, just roll your shoulders back and down. Inviting the shoulders and arms to soften and relax. And then breathe deep into your belly and feel the belly and heart rise as you inhale. And as you exhale, just feel that wave of relaxation washing back down your spine. And breathe deep into your belly. And then feel a wave of relaxation washing through your upper body. And breathe deep into your belly again. Feel an expansion through your lower body, through your hips,
1: your pelvis. And as you exhale, feel
2: that wave of relaxation washing down your legs, to the soles of your feet and the tips of your toes. and begin to notice how your breath moves just like a wave, rising on the inhale, and falling on the exhale. Inhale, rising, and exhale, falling. Inviting yourself to be fully present and notice how this wave moves with ease, without effort. Now harnessing the imagination of a child, imagine a beautiful beam of sunlight washing down over the top of the head and filling your body with beautiful, Beams of light moving through every cell of your body and just taking a few breaths together in silence. And when you're ready feel your feet on the floor bring movement into your fingertips and your toes and softly and gently open your eyes great <laughs> cool so um was excellent that? thank you though yeah
0: that was certainly very very deep very fast
1: cool great.
0: wonderful feeling of uh, calm and Peace for me in that meditation
1: cool well thank you for having me i'm here at my board member's house dan codkey he's a member of my executive board and uh i wish i could give everyone a tour of his house his house is a plethora of spiritual books you know he has a whole section on 70s music burning man um other things that i will leave unnamed and then tons Hmm. on mindfulness and Uh, Neem Curly Baba and Ram Das, and it's just he's a fascinating brilliant man Um, so I want to thank Dan for letting me use his house today to do this interview Um, and thank you Julian for um, for being present with me and for taking the time to listen and to care about Mission B and the work we're doing with children in schools I'm super grateful Uh, so thanks so much for that
0: absolutely it's a pleasure to have you on the show and I think it's a pleasure for everyone listening and all of us um, to step deeper and deeper into this kind of new earth we're building with, with purpose and connection to this space of mindfulness on the inside and then let it reflect in the way we build relationships and work and the society on the outside. I hope you too enjoyed this episode. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast on either iTunes or Spotify, Green Planet, Blue Planet podcast, and join me and others in the conversation on Facebook, Green Planet, Blue Planet Podcast on Facebook. Wherever you are, have yourself a Saturday.